Yeah, so great question, Justin. Um, you know, Bex Hybrids, as, as I like to kind of explain it to folks, so we started in 1937. Uh, we're a family-owned uh, independent seed company. Uh, we sell corn, soybeans, and wheat to farmers uh, in 80% of the row crop market, really, from the I-States uh, south. Uh, we go to market through a, through a farmer-dealer network. Um, and uh, we are also a company of great growth and scale. So even though we're an 85-year-old company, uh, we're in about a 15 to 20% growth pattern per year. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, we're a family-owned independent seed company, and uh, folks will tell you, you know, kind of our mantra and our marching orders here are to help farmers succeed. So, uh, you know, the Beck family and most of the folks that work here are also farmers, uh, and then we use our, you know, God-given talents to work in multiple different uh, verticals uh, across the company. Yeah, it's a, it's a well-established company and you're fairly well-established in the company too. I mean, you are not new to the show, right? Like you wore a couple different hats. Can, uh, it's an interesting story. Can you talk a little bit about kind of how you started there and what you're doing now? Yeah, so I started out, you know, in the main office and they, they keep pushing me further and further back here. Uh, before long, I'm going to be back in storage unit D. But uh, but no, so my my journey here at, at Bex, I've been really blessed to be full time here for 18 years. Uh, I started out here as uh, as an intern, as a sophomore at Purdue University uh, that saw a flyer that Bex was hiring interns. They were looking for a marketing intern. Uh, and literally the, the thought, Justin, going through my mind was I'm pretty sure I could fake that for seven weeks. So uh, I applied for it, uh, you know, and got a call back that they were moving into a corporate office, needed a strong back, some big guy with broad shoulders. Um, and, uh, so I got hired as a computer intern, not knowing the rocket ship I was about ready to strap myself to, um, you know, so I can remember, uh, so the funny stories that I, that I like to tell as the old man with gray hair and back in storage unit D, uh, you know, is I've almost been fired from Bex nine times. And I can remember about the second week of my internship going to the person that hired me, uh, his name's Gavin. He's still here at, at Bex today and asking him for something to do. And he looked at me and he goes, if I tell you what to do, I'm going to fire you. So find work and be valuable. And I said, yes, sir. And so I, I did that from, from that day on. And so, uh, you know, it was a very small organization, you know, 50 people-ish. Uh, and, and, and so got a variety of different exposure as well. So when you're in a smaller organization, you get such variety. So, you know, whether it is, um, you know, you, 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 you are doing help desk type of work, whether you're working on phone lines, you're helping with a fertilizer pump. I can remember troubleshooting a center pivot irrigation thing. I had no idea what I was doing, right? It's just digital logic. So start out as an intern there. The other funny story that I like to tell is that's why my email address is just Brad because, you know, Gavin thought I wouldn't last more than three weeks. And that was uh, 2001. So got offered a job full time. Uh, I was employee number 68. You know, again, relatively single location, small business. We went through an explosive growth phase. Um, and so as when you're an IT group of three, um, you know, my journey really is one of just shedding responsibility for 20 years, to be honest, because we all did everything. And uh, so then over the years, you know, was the network engineering guy, uh, you know, uh, ran IT operations, help desk, uh, network, data center work. And then uh, three years ago, took this role as a director of innovation and started a new group really looking at uh, business-wide uh, disruptive type of technologies and how how we can implement them. But I'm a farm boy at heart, Justin, uh, you know, so 
my uh, wife and four girls, we reside on my mom's family farm about half an hour north of here and have a small show pig and butcher business that we run out of there. So we still, I still get the opportunity to uh, to work on a farm to be close to the to the to the customers, uh, but yet uh, continue to work in the business. So one of the reasons I was excited to have you uh, on this podcast was we were at an ag tech conference uh, recently, and uh, when you took the stage, you're addressing a crowd that had some sort of tech oriented type people. You had some ag folks in there. It was kind of a cross section of in some ways cultures in some ways. And, and your opening line, like really grabbed my attention and beyond you had good content in there too. You guys are doing some interesting stuff, but you opened it up by saying, Hey, raise your hand. If you filed a schedule F on your taxes, you're wanting to see like who actually really knows farming and how much of this is sort of daydreamy idealistic stuff versus, Hey, is this going to work right now? And is going to put money in farmers' pockets, that type of thing. And it really grabbed attention. I think it really brought people down to earth. It's like, oh yeah, it's fun to daydream, but it's also like, this has to like really work, right? Yeah. And so I love my friends in academia. Um, I love my friends in business and my whole career in, in, in IT. And a lot of the projects that I've worked on here is how do we marry tech and ag together in one. But, uh, you know, being the third speaker there, um, it was, I would say, some tra tra traditional ag content. You know, we need to use data. We need to be more efficient, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so what I think is important is that a lot of people are missing the voice of the farmer. And so instead of talking to a farmer and telling them what they should be doing, like, I want to tell you what's actually happening at the farm gate and the awesome innovation. Farmers are not waiting for anybody to tell them what to do. And they're also, um, they don't need a bunch of academics most of the time. Uh, you know, they're not saying, now, what should be the data standard at which I should move data from my combine to my computer? That, like, that's just, that's nonsense. And so we like to, you know, at Bex, I often explain it to people that we're a farm that happens to own a business. So like everything that we do has to put value in, it has to put money into our customers' pockets. Notice I didn't say company. And so that's the interesting viewpoint that we bring is I will tell you what's actually happening on farm right now that's driving value. Farmers do not wake up every morning thinking about what data standard they should use, how they're going to move data around. I would argue most of them don't think about feeding 9 billion people. They don't think about an ESG score. Not to say that those things can't happen, but that's a laggard that's not a leader. So the whole point of the conversation was, if you want to drive some of those, it's not inherently bad. Just don't show up on the farm gate going, hey, you need to use less water. You need to feed 9 billion people and you need to do this. Because right now with high commodity prices and yes, high input prices as well, they're already making an income. So you have to drive customer value first. And then you can also get some of the other uh, intangible benefits with it. But if you're not focused on customer value, what you're doing is just pure theater. And I think we've seen that in the ag tech industry here in the last couple of years. I have a friend here in Indy that says it has to be net, not neat. And you can make some really cool technology, some really cool pictures, but if it's not applicable at the farm gate and driving value, then you're merely just raising money and going into debt and then you're screwed. So that's those are the conversations I like to have. And that I like to remind people, farmer are the original environmentalist. Environmentalist, they're the original um, innovation person. 
Um, and um, I think so many times people think of farmers as overalls and pitchforks, and that is that could not be further from the truth. Yeah, in some ways, I, I feel like you have a very kind of pragmatic and, and in some ways like common sense approach to this. But it's but I have to tell you, at some of these conferences, that's a refreshing <laughs> stance to have. I don't know if I'll ever be asked back, but I have to do our customers. Um, I We have to advocate for them, yeah. you know, and so the place that I sit in the business, I really enjoy the opportunity to have those kinds of conversations um, and uh, seeing where seeing where we need to advocate for that for, for that customer. Because that question that I asked when I opened that talk up, out of a room of 70, 80 people, there was one person that raised their hand. So. Yeah, I, I remember, yeah. It, it's I'm always interested to talk with people who um, have innovation in their title or in their role, because it has such a different definition in different organizations. Um, I was recently asked at a conference to lead a, a panel on innovation. And I said, it's interesting that you asked me to uh, lead this panel. I don't use that word, um, mostly because I, I've just seen it abused. Uh, I can see that just from the way you kind of, you speak about things that you're not abusing that word. I mean, it, it to me, the definition of innovation is like, there must be a better way. Right. And, um, and that's just, that's just what it is. It doesn't mean like the fanciest technology or whatever. It's just, yeah. there must be a better way. Let's experiment with methods. Can you talk a little bit about how your priority of always making sure that it benefits the farmer, not necessarily that it's farmer first, not company first, how that works into sort of your approach when it comes to innovation and evaluating opportunities and that type of thing? Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic question. And lately I've been telling people innovation's a loaded word, just like climate and sustainability, <laughs> you know? And so I like to define the word innovation. And so, you know, at Bex, when, when I was asked to start this department three years ago, my first answer was no. Because to much to your point, Justin, we had seen companies that had innovation because they had a toxic culture that didn't allow people to change or to get efficiencies from the ground up. So they have to take people outside of the business, put them in a room with whiteboards and fancy IKEA furniture and think that magical ideas come flowing out the back. And I said, I don't want to work for a company that does that. And so our owners graciously sat me down and said, that's not what we want, Brad. So, um, you know, innovation as we define it. Uh, my role in our group here is really um, a, a, around three main pillars. And so the first thing is, as I mentioned, we're a growing and scaling company. I was employee number 68. We're now at 900 we went from one location to I think we've got 18 locations now in 16 states. And so um, my first role is to work with department managers to evaluate and implement disruptive change. And so what I mean by that is that, number one, I'm just overhead, but, you know, uh, two different departments, when you're asking your, your folks to do 15 to 20% more business every single year, they're uh, most of the times concerned about operational challenges and trying to get home every night. And, um, you know, just because our business is scaling doesn't always mean your FTEs are. And, and so um, what we found was that some department managers wanted the ability to have more white space. And so that's what we we create, but it's not, it is completely up to the department manager of how we engage with them. So for some, it's, I've got an idea. I need you to take this whole thing from ideation to implementation. For some, it's just, can you help me with the cash flow? Or I had this startup company come to me, or how do I present this to leadership and, and ownership? And then there's some department managers that don't want to give me the, the time of day. And all that is perfectly accessible, is, is perfectly fine. 
So number one, I'm an, I'm an internal resource. Number two, what we also do is we have a lot of startup companies that knock on our door thinking that they want to do business with us. And so we engage with those startup companies. Um, we hear their pitch and we really act as a concierge for the startup company. So if we think that your pitch is applicable, your second meeting is with the actual decision maker in our business that can either approve or, re or reject whatever you want to do. As a part of that, we also kind of lump in uh, commercialization from the universities. So what started out as commercialization now has kind of morphed into university relations, but um, it's how we keep tabs on everything coming out of the great land grants uh, here in the United States. And then the third thing that I do and why I have perhaps the best job at Vex Hybrids, Justin, is that you know we are a family independent faith-based company. So we I get the opportunity to think about the future for the next 10 years of what is agricultural sales going to look like. Sonny says that at Vex, we're focused on helping the farmers succeed. We do that through seed and through six value adds that come with that. But what does the future hold? Do we need to look at other industries? Do we, you know, what and, and what's going to change about selling seed? Um, and so I get the opportunity to explore that. Um, I will just share a little tidbit with you though, Justin, when I moved from technical to this role, there was a lot of growth that had to happen. So when you go from being a, a technical person and like you get to see instant feedback, you know, I closed these tickets, I did this thing, I spun up this data center, we got fiber rolling, like you get job satisfaction immediately to move into this role now where, you know, under that third pillar where you're trying to look for blue, for blue sky and blue ocean thinking, you're told no 99 out of 100 times all the time that you're learning. And that's easy to say, but as a technical engineer, that's very difficult to go home and live with that. So that was a lot of changes that I had to do in myself and I've had to be comfortable with. Um, and really that's how we um, how we view my role and uh, and how I how I bring value to our to our company. So I hope that answered your uh, question there. No, it does. It, it, it's important to note, though, I think for anybody who's considering being in, in a role that is an innovative role, right? Because, right, if you come up the industry and you kind of learn uh, it, cut your teeth on stuff where you have the instant gratification of I'm succeeding, I'm succeeding, I'm succeeding very quickly. Uh, it's a whole different ballgame when you start to be tasked with like, hey, think about long term or be in a position where uh, failure is actually more than half the time. And that's just to be expected. That's just what it looks like. In fact, I mean, that's, I think it's what Steve Jobs said. Innovation is saying yeah. no. What is it you think? It's like innovation is saying no to a thousand good things or something like that. And yeah. I, I think that's and probably it's right. hard because sometimes you're looking for somebody to tell you what to do because you're so used to give me the requirements. I'll go meet the requirements and we'll implement that. And sometimes they won't tell you what they want, but they'll tell you what they don't want. And so you have to be able to like thread that needle very, very carefully. And then they're going to change their mind. So, so yeah. And you're probably interacting with people who are, are very sharp, very eager, have uh, what they believe is a great idea. And in some cases you're empowering them and allowing them to take it further. In other cases, you're probably like, I don't, I don't buy into this or, you know, I don't think you've quite got it right. And that can not be, sometimes that's not great either, right? Like when you yeah. bring a little- well, and one, of the, the table. one of the interesting things along that storyline too, is that one of the things that you can't teach and you can't do on your own is like passion and motivation. And so what I have, what I have learned too, like we don't, to be honest, and I, I don't mean for this to sound arrogant, but like we don't need any more ideas. Like, 
we really don't. Um, What I need are passionate people that want to do change for the better of our customer and the better of our organization. And so some of my conversations with folks right now is they'll come and say, hey, I think we need to spin up this new business unit or, or, or something. And before we talk finances, money or anything, I said, are you willing to quit your current job and do this full time and live it, breathe it, think about it and do this until this thing gets off of the ground? And if their answer is no, then I'm out. Like, I don't want any part of this. But if your answer is yes, I will fight tooth and nail to get this thing done with you and for you. And that was a hard lesson that I maybe learned in the first 24, 24 months is that, um, you know, a lot of people think, well, if you have a financial metrics and, you know, it gives you all green lights, then you implement said project and boom, you're successful. And it actually has very little to do with that. And um, so the first thing that we look at is the passion and drive. And I had a project that this um, this kind of really slapped me in the face because the feedback that I got from Sonny Beck was, if you find somebody as passionate about this project as I am about seed corn, I'm all in. And so it is, I'm, I'm more and more convinced the older that I get and the more we get in, in and into these projects, it's about more about passionate people. Um, and those, if you are passionate about the topic, the problem, everything else will, 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 will fall in. It's a great point, and it transfers to so many different people in different walks of life. But it's, um, it's easy to get excited about something and kind of again dream it up, and and you can see it. But if you're not going to stick with it, you're not going to be resilient. Um, all you've done is create something that needs to be maintained potentially by somebody else, or it just kind of dies on the vine, right? Like it, yeah, it's, well, it I think we see that. Throughput. We see that through our own experiences too, right? There are brands that we interact with that are transactional. And there are brands I think that we have where we're like, I'm all in. And most of it is because of a customer experience. It's because you know somebody, you know the CEO, like those, that is what I think creates in, endurance when it comes to customer and ideas. And not that there's anything wrong with, you know, making money and turning and burning, but like, if you want to make something that is going to withstand 85 years and the next 85 years, you have to have that um, that sort of connection with your customer that, you know, that is all about customer service and experience and not about transaction. And that's what we're about here. So can we go back to that second pillar that you talked about where you're kind yeah. of the front door for some of these startups that come to you? Because there's some interesting projects um, or engagements that you've had where you're kind of vetting out this type of thing. My, my uh, takeaway after hearing some of, the, of your interactions with them is that, hey, if I'm, if I'm in ag tech uh, on the venture side, I would want to run this by Brad and see what he thinks. Like that's, that's yeah. the point of view I had. I don't know if you get that a lot, but I'd love to hear more about what you're doing there and maybe some, some that you think have potential or anything related to that. Yeah. Well, again, this goes to being the uh, jaded man in the back. I'm definitely opinionated, right, wrong, or indifferent. But, you know, when I started this role, I originally thought we were going to need a fund and we were going to have to do investing. And so went down that path. Um, and, uh, you know, that can be a challenge when you're in a company that is growing and scaling. And um, a lot of almost all the capital is going back into the business to grow it and make it bigger and better. Um, and so, I thought it was going to be a handicap. And so as I went through though, and, you know, had to be comfortable in my own skin 
and find out what we were really, really good at. I found that um, we had VC companies coming to us asking what we were looking at. You know, one of the things that we're blessed with here at Beck Cybers is to have a group called Practical Farm Research, uh, which is about 2,000 acres in seven or eight states where we can actually test products. And everybody's like, hey, how did you see this, this or that? Can you give us advice on what happened with this trial or that trial? And then we had startup companies coming to us and, and saying, hey, you know, I'm raising, you know, 1 million, 5, 10, 20 million. And what we found is that there was, there was this disconnect and there's a lack of what I would call investable companies. And so like, I don't have the capability to write a $50 million check. But what we were finding is VCs that had, you know, 100, 200, 500 million dollars of dry powder coming to us and saying, you know, what are you seeing that is of interest to you that's actually making a difference and providing value at the farm gate? So what we found is that it's actually been awesome to not have an investment arm here at at Bex. So if we've got folks that come to us that we can um, verify the value and validity of what they're working on, I'm glad to match you up with a number of different VC companies and vice versa. We There's a number of VCs that we have quarterly calls with where we're like, hey, we're looking at these four things. We think that there's something really cool here. We don't think that there's something cool or, you know, the question right now, uh, you know, definitely in uh, in inflationary time is, you know, what do you think the value of this is so that we don't get companies that are overvalued or have raised too much cash? Um, and so we, uh, we, we provide that advice. Now, I'm also very honest, Justin, like we approach this from our single point of view. We're in seed. So when I talk about value, that's the lens that I'm looking from. We're not ag retail. We're not ag chem. Like, so we are biased and I, I try to just clearly say, here's my bias. Um, but, um, but it's been, um, I found it to be freeing to actually just be able to give advice on both sides and then be a matchmaker. Cause the fact of the matter is I can't compete with some of these large funds that have this amount of dry powder. So I would rather do some intros or, um, do a, a, a cup, a couple calls there. So, yeah. That makes sense. One of the things that um, most players in ag tech um, deal with, that's it, some would call it an obstacle, is if, you, if you're in the SaaS world, your feedback loops on learning is just so fast. Mm -hmm. And in ag tech, as you know, with the growing seasons and things like that, it's capital intensive, time, time um, feedback cycles are a little bit slower. Are there things that you and your team have done to try to overcome that or to try to minimize that obstacle? Yeah, you know, that is probably the biggest point of feedback, especially for investors that aren't used to the ag space, is that they don't like the the, the potential return on their money. Because, you know, the fact of the matter is, especially in row crops, we're still waiting for a biological system to actually grow. So uh, if you push code out during planting season, it doesn't work. Like you just can't push code in two weeks and then, you know, try it again. You got to wait a whole nother year. Um, so there are there are a couple of of exceptions there, uh, you know, especially for uh, for global companies. But that's probably the biggest uh, uh, point of feedback that we give to investors. Now, most mature ag tech investors already know this. Um, one of the biggest things that I, I think is we always speculate whether you like it or, or not on what the value of the technology is based on history. 
um, and then try to see how fast you can reiterate. You know, there are technologies that we've done on small scale where we've either gone to greenhouse or we've gone to South America in off seasons to try to maybe get another data set. Um, but the fact of the matter is most of the on-farm testing is going to occur once per year, twice a year at, at, at best. The caveat to that is that, you know, there is one of the spaces that, that I've chatted about with you, Justin, you know, is that we're, we're really big into uh, robotics and automation and watching and evaluating that space right now. But what we found is that there's an adjacent vertical in our friends in produce. So what's going on on the West Coast right now, you know, they're able to innovate three times per year because they can get three growing cycles in. So instead of doing something from the ground up here in the I States, we're going to, you know, our approach to it is let's watch what's going on in produce. And once you start to have some winners and some folks that have floated to the top in terms of value, then let's start to have some conversations about adapting that to, to row crops. So, um, but some of that was just sitting down and, and saying, we can't innovate as fast as they can. They have more margin in their product than what we do. It doesn't make sense for row crop to maybe build something from the ground up. It's gonna, it, it's gonna benefit us to maybe partner and then let them reiterate a lot quicker. A, a great story about this, I think some folks have heard, you know, uh, Bear Flag Robotics got acquired last year by, by John Deere. We spent some time with the Bear Flag team. And, you know, the question was, they were in an autonomous tillage and it was why tillage? And they were like, well, in produce, some lettuce guys are disking a field literally 40 or 45 times. So what better way to collect a huge amount of data and reiterate than to go into tillage of produce? So that's just one example where a company found a way to work with the system that that they had to work with. And yes, I'm sure their technology is going to be applicable to many implements and many different things. And while that's fun and exciting, tillage is a thing that sucks. No one wants to do it. But they were able to reiterate at a very, very, very fast rate. And within a year and a half, they, they had reiterated so many times that they were able to sell that company. That's cool. That's that's a clever that's a clever way to be thinking, and one that I think a lot of people can probably learn from. Is is robotics and automation the area that you're most excited about, or are there others that you really have your eye on and and kind yeah. of get you excited about? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, so robotics and automation uh, is a huge huge part, I think, of what the next ten to twenty years of ag, much like what we've seen, what's happened with yield monitoring. And you know, in-field sensors in in the last ten years, you're going to start to see a, a bigger push towards that. You know, there isn't a vertical out there right now that's not talking about a lack of labor. Ag is no exception to that, especially again for our friends in produce, which have a very tight window of freshness where they need to get things out of the field. Um, so, robotics and automation with when when you have a constrained labor market, you're going to see uh, more money than what have in in the past kind of free up there i would say we're also still interested in any sort of sensor while we've seen a lot of above ground sensors below ground sensors really are exciting right now um, th there's a number of real-time soil probes that are coming out where um, you know are, are going to start to apply pressure on this on the soil sampling market so instead of sending soil samples once per once per year once every three years you're going to be able to get some data you know every 15 minutes. I don't know why you would want to do that, but you you could definitely do it. Um, the other thing that has us really excited right now uh, is the soil sensing DNA space. And, and so 
Um, again, that goes into we don't have very good visibility right now into what's going on underneath our soil. We've got great visibility above ground. And so those below ground technologies of what's happening to the denitrification process, what pathogens are in there that are dead or alive, um, how can you know us as a seed company help to protect that seed as much as we can uh, while it's sitting in the in the uh, ground there? So those are some exciting things. Now I, I would tell you one of the things that we're also looking at is how we can continue to value add to everybody in the value chain. So you know right now today the the um, our customer is the farmer and it'll continue to be the farmer. But a lot of what they're being asked to do is being swayed by the CPG companies and the upstream buyer. So we continue to look at what those trends are and if there's any opportunity there that we can get farmers to be more closely linked with those CPG companies, um, no matter if it's in a niche market or if it's selling you know, a, a commodity with, uh, with certain attributes to it, uh, that is definitely an exciting space. So That's cool. What's been the most rewarding part of moving into this new role that you're in? Oh man. So I would, that's a great question. I would say the most rewarding thing for me, honestly, has been um, when we can help departments um, execute on something that they've wanted to do for a while. And I've got other departments um, not kind of knocking on all, all cylinders for lack of a better word. So my best day is when I can help support an apartment manager or maybe um, somebody underneath that department manager that you know as a as a growth item was given a task to implement or to to change things. So my best day is when they win. And um, if I'm doing my job right, nobody knows what I do, and they just see me in the back as the angry old man back in storage unit D.